Heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here, as always, with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And despite all my rage, I am still just a rat in the news. Derek, let's start with U.S. Iran contacts. Yeah, this is something that's really escalated over the past week. There have been reports going back a couple of weeks. I think last month, uh, Barack Ravid, uh, who's a reporter at Axios, uh, reported that uh, the Middle East coordinator for the U.S. National Security Council, Brett McGurk, uh, who has been advising, I think, the last four U.S. presidents on the Middle East, all of them badly because he's not very good at his job, but he nevertheless sticks around. Anyway, uh, he led a team, according to the Ravid's reporting, he led a team to Oman last month that included uh, or coincided, I guess, with a visit from an Iranian delegation to Oman. This was not coincidental. Uh, according to, to Ravid, they engaged in some indirect contacts, some indirect negotiations facilitated by the Omanis uh, around the issue of de-escalating tensions around Iran's nuclear program. Uh, this has sparked uh, a lot of speculation over the past several days uh, that has risen all the way to the level of the Israeli government. Benjamin Netanyahu uh, told Parliament on Tuesday that he was aware that the U.S. and Iran are circling around a what he called a mini-agreement uh, on the nuclear program. U.S. officials have been sort of denying but not denying uh, that there's a, a deal potentially in place. They've kind of played down uh, the imminence of such a deal, but they have kind of tacitly acknowledged that there have been some some contacts here. Even Iranian Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei reportedly gave a a speech earlier this week to a group of people connected with Iran's nuclear industry in which he suggested that he was open, and this is key because, of course, the Supreme Leader makes all uh, foreign policy decisions ultimately in Iran, that he was open to the idea of some kind of agreement between Iran and the West. He wouldn't, he didn't say the U.S. because, uh, you know, that's, that's a little verboten, but he did, he said between Iran and the West, uh, that would limit Iran's nuclear activity as long as it didn't uh, affect the the underlying nuclear infrastructure, Iran's underlying nuclear infrastructure. So even Khamenei seemed to uh, give a wink and a nod to the idea of a deal. On Thursday, then, there's this report now from the New York Times uh, that said there is uh, really an imminent uh, agreement on the table here. It would be kind of unwritten... Uh, they called it informal and unwritten in the, the piece. Basically, the, the contours would be Iran would agree not to enrich uranium beyond the 60% level. Uh, so it would agree to, for example, not go to 90% or above, which is weapons grade. Uh, it would also, the Iranians would also agree to, uh, rein in their militias, uh, in Syria and Iraq, uh, you know, sort of uh, to keep them from attacking U.S. personnel. Uh, there may be some reduction in Iranian arms sales to Russia. I'm not entirely 
sure what the scope of that would be. And in return, the United States would lay off sanctions for a while, wouldn't impose any new sanctions. It would stop seizing Iranian oil tankers, uh, as it has done from time to time, most recently in April. And it would uh, maybe, and this is something I don't, I don't know that this is, well, the, time, the Times piece does mention it. I think the real centerpiece from Iran's perspective would be that the U.S. would uh, allow or agree to allow some amount of Iranian money uh, in the billions of dollars uh, to be unfrozen. There's a lot of Iranian assets that are frozen around the world because of banking sanctions uh, in various countries. Uh, so the U.S. would would allow some amount of that money, some portion of that money uh, to be unfrozen. Uh, this would be under some restrictions. It could be used by the Iranians to, for example, pay U.N. dues or pay for things like food and medicine uh, from you know various uh, sellers that have been approved by the, the U.S. government. The U.S. also last week uh, did issue a waiver for Iraq to pay I think close to $3 billion in uh, energy costs or energy expenses uh, to Iran. Iraq imports a lot of its, um, despite being a very resource-rich nation, imports a lot of its electricity and gas power from from Iran. So uh, that's another indication, I guess, that that they're um, talking, or at least that, that things are on a uh, less contentious track. Um, the, the U.S. frequently does issue these waivers anyway, uh, especially for the Iraqis, because the alternative is that Iraq says, screw you, we're going to pay for this stuff anyway, because we need electricity and gas, and the U.S. would rather not uh, face that kind of embarrassment. Nevertheless, it sounds like they're really close to something. There, I, I, one other detail that uh, may be involved is a prisoner exchange of some kind, or maybe even just the Iranian release of U.S. nationals. It has custody. Again, I don't know how far the negotiations have gotten on that front, but uh, all these things are being talked about. Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's talk about the fact that our beautiful country was hit by a cyber attack. Uh, yeah, this is, again, something that just broke on Thursday, but CNN uh, had this story. The uh, U.S. Uh, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Agency says that a number of federal government agencies have been hit in a major cyber attack. Um, they're unclear at this point uh, who... Uh, is be, who, who's responsible. There's some indication it might be a Russian uh, hacker group, but it's still very early for this. Nevertheless, it, it does seem like a number of systems have been hit. U.S. government agencies, I think the uh, University of Georgia was mentioned, John Ho Johns Hopkins uh, was mentioned in the story. So a lot of places uh, basically getting hit by this uh, apparent hack. Uh, again, uh, it's just breaking, just broke a little little while before we started recording, so I don't have full details on the scope or anything like that. I'll forgive you this time. Let's give well, some updates on Sudan. You shouldn't, really. You shouldn't forgive me. It's, it's I don't deserve it. That's for sure. Uh, updates <laughs> on Sudan, Derek. <laughs> okay, uh, Sudan, yes. There was a ceasefire uh, that went into place, a 24-hour ceasefire that went into place uh, in Sudan on Saturday morning. Uh, this was the result of uh, this U.S.-Saudi mediation effort that is uh, ongoing in Jeddah, may not be ongoing for, for much longer. I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, the ceasefire, unlike 
past ceasefires does seem to have actually taken hold and and there was a lot there was a, a pause in the fighting uh, at least in the kind of Khartoum Omdurman Bahri triangle uh at the you know the the main kind of urbanized area of, of Sudan uh that did allow for some humanitarian aid deliveries uh to to help alleviate uh, some of the civilian suffering that's been going on there the problem in this case was not that the the two sides ignore the ceasefire as they have done repeatedly in the past it's that um if there was any hope of this 24-hour ceasefire being extended it was uh, misguided because on uh, sunday morning when it ended they immediately resumed very heavy fighting in fact heavier than before which suggests that uh, one or both uh, of the the combatants, the belligerents probably used that time during the ceasefire to reposition some forces and prepare for a a more intense conflict. So, and that's been sort of the state of things uh, since the weekend. The ceasefire agreed by U.S. and Saudi mediators allowed civilians to get humanitarian assistance, but with stocks running low, residents struggled to find food and essential supplies. Uh, in terms of other updates, there have been some. Some new reporting, there's been some new reporting on the effect of this conflict between the Sudanese military and the rapid support forces on areas outside of that Khartoum Omdurman Bari uh, triangle. That's been where most of the reporting has focused, and, and for understandable reasons, it's difficult to get into more remote parts of the country, especially at a time of uh, major conflict, to, to sort of get a sense of, of casualties and other uh, other effects, but there was a report uh, from Reuters on Monday citing activists in Darfur to, to say that at least 1,100 people have been killed in the capital of West Darfur State, which is uh, the city of Jenina, since the conflict began in mid-April. That is a, a fairly shocking figure based on uh, the the sort of overall casualty figures that have been coming out of Sudan. Uh, which officially, according to the, you know, the Sudanese Doctors Association, the total number of people killed has only been about 950, uh, according to them. And, and uh, they're kind of constrained by the same uh, things that, that uh, sort of media outlets are constrained by. So they're really struggling, I think, to get information from Darfur and other places like that. The uh, Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project, uh, ACLED, uh, which people may be familiar with, uh, has in its latest estimate of total deaths across the entire country uh, has suggested uh, we're around 1,800. So to say that 1,100 people have been killed in one city in Darfur uh, over the past two months really you know, exceeds any of these, uh, these estimates. Um, additionally, there are, uh, according to the United Nations, there are now more than 2 million people who have been displaced by this conflict, about 530,000 of them refugees, meaning people who have crossed Sudan's borders to, to other countries, and about 1.6 million people displaced inside the country. Again, the, the you know, whether this, uh, if anything, this, this probably undercounts the, uh, the problem just because of the difficulty in kind of uh, assessing what's going on. On uh, the diplomatic front, I know I mentioned uh, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. They are apparently, uh, according to U.S. officials who talked to AFP on Wednesday, uh, they are reconsidering their mediation work. Uh, they're they're in talks. The U.S. Uh, these U.S. officials said they're in talks with the Saudis and other uh, states in the region, other U.S. aligned states in the region, to consider a next way forward 
that may not may include dropping this mediation effort. The fact that it's failed almost utterly to achieve anything of note is not only has been bad for Sudan in terms of you know the the uh, the failure itself, but it, it's it's kind of looking like a diplomatic embarrassment. I would say for the U.S., so it's not surprising that they're they're trying to uh, maybe extricate themselves from this and, and maybe turn over responsibility to uh, uh, regional coalitions. The Intergovernmental Authority on Development, which works in the Horn of Africa, is that that region's kind of economic and political bloc, uh, has appointed a new committee uh, with um, Ethiopia, Somalia, South Sudan, and Kenya uh, to try and step in and, and do some diplomatic work mediating whatever whatever they can can try to do they've already gotten pushback from uh, at least the Sudanese military which just refuses to uh, have any high level interaction with the rapid support forces they regard uh, the commander Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo as a criminal uh, and the RSF in general as a at this point a criminal gang so they they don't want to uh, elevate it I guess to the the level of uh, interlocutor so the, all these diplomatic efforts are are uh, struggling right now, but I think there may be a, a bit of a change in emphasis from this U.S.-Saudi effort to something more uh, based in, in the Horn of Africa. Thanks, Derek. Let's talk now about the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Yes, this seems to be underway now. Uh, I think uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky admitted, admitted as much uh, several days ago, and the Ukrainian uh, military has advanced uh, a, a little bit, uh, reportedly into, uh, I think at this point, the number is 10 villages, uh, along a stretch of the front line that, that goes from Zaporizhia Oblast in, in southeastern Ukraine to Donetsk Oblast in, in eastern Ukraine. Uh, they've advanced about a hundred square kilometers was the latest figure I saw. This was, uh, again, reported on Thursday. So not, terribly much. Uh, information is very spotty in terms of uh, how many, lo- what, what kind of losses the Ukrainians are taking in terms of both human costs and costs to all this swanky Western uh, material that they've been getting, armored vehicles and so forth. So uh, it's, it's hard to know what kind of price they've paid for what is really at this point just a, a uh, a fairly minimal advance or minimal change in territory. Um, there's no indication that the the Russian line is buckling anywhere, as far as I know. Um, of course, some things like that can happen fairly quickly or very suddenly. Um, but the Russians have had a lot of time to dig in in this part of the country to dig to put together defensive fortifications and uh, really prepare for. Uh, a Ukrainian offensive. So, uh, you know, it, it may be uh, pretty slow going uh, in terms of what's going on here. And, and I, I wouldn't expect that necessarily to change. Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's stay in the region and talk about the Nord Stream investigation. Yeah, there have been a couple of developments here. The German government has been investigating this. You know, obviously Nord Stream was, uh, the pipelines connected Russia to, to Germany directly. So the German government has taken a keen interest, uh, one might say, in trying to figure out who blew them up in September. Uh, they have been uh, focusing now on events in Poland, the, the sabotage team that they think they've, they're kind of circling, uh, that used a, a a yacht, a 50-foot yacht to, to carry out, to kind of sail out and 
carry out this attack, according to the Germans anyway, uh, spent a, a deal, a good deal of time in Poland, may have gotten the yacht there. There was some logistical uh, work that, that apparently was done in Poland. So uh, that part of the investigation is, is going on now. The most interesting development here is uh, that a Dutch media outlet reported earlier this week that that country's military intelligence service, the MIVD, warned the CIA last June that there was a Ukrainian plan being developed to blow up the Nord Stream pipeline. In response to that or alongside that, a group of our, you know, our favorite people, anonymous U.S. officials, uh, started going out to media outlets like the New York Times to say that the CIA, once it got this warning, then approached the Ukrainians and said, hey, guys, we don't think you should do this. This is a bad idea. Please don't blow up the pipelines. And the Ukrainians assured them that they had already kind of considered this plan and had rejected it, uh, and they weren't going to do it. Of course, somebody did blow up the pipelines. Increasingly, it seems like the consensus in uh, Western media is to to draw the uh, draw a circle around Ukraine and say it was the Ukrainians, possibly just the Ukrainians, maybe... Uh, you know, with a little bit of help from, from, you know, there's hints about Poland, as I said, but certainly it couldn't possibly, it couldn't possibly have gotten any help from, uh, like the UK or the US or any, you know, uh, major Western, uh, intelligence services. And indeed, now, now we get the story that, that the CIA warned the Ukrainians not to do it. Don't, you know, don't do this. And the Ukrainians, uh, I guess blew them off and did it anyway. I don't see any particular reason to believe any of this. You know, it seems uh, fairly obvious that this is self-serving. Uh, that doesn't not to say it's not true. It's just I don't you know know how much credence to give it. Um, is it plausible that the Ukrainians were the driving force behind this uh, attack? Yes, that is plausible. Do I think necessarily that uh, the CIA would have urged them not to do it? I, I don't know. I'm I'm less uh, less confident about that. Uh, but who knows? That's where the the story is right now. Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's talk about Sweden and NATO. Yes, uh, there was a meeting in Ankara apparently on Wednesday involving representatives from NATO itself and from the Swedish and Turkish governments. Uh, Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, uh, said that they made some progress uh, in that meeting. I, I I don't know how much progress they could have possibly made. The subject obviously was Turkey, you know, uh, unblocking Swedos or Sweden's uh, NATO accession. Um, I like there Swedo. Is a Let's keep on Swedo. using yeah, Swedo. Swedo. <laughs> Let's just do that. Swedo is uh, the the acronym here. Uh, there are, you know, there's a lot of hope uh, among m- most corners in NATO. Obviously, not Turkey necessarily, or Hungary, which is also also has not ratified uh, Sweden's application. There have been some hopes that NATO could. Uh, wheel Sweden out as its brand new, uh, m- you know, most recent member at its leaders summit next month in Lithuania. Um, but it doesn't sound like anything that happened on Wednesday really advanced that, that the prospects for that, uh, significantly. The Turkish government is still, uh, says it, it's waiting to see how Sweden implements, uh, recent new laws around, uh, kind of terrorism, quote unquote terrorism that could apply to, for example, uh, Kurdistan Workers Party, uh, members who are in Sweden and whether that will lead to extraditions to Turkey, uh, which is something the Turks want. They also seem to be demanding, uh, that the Swedish government ban 
protests, uh, anti-Turkey protests, which has been a fairly frequently, uh, fairly frequent occurrence in Stockholm, uh, particularly in recent months, in part because of this NATO thing. There's a, a you know, the the public sentiment in Sweden is pro-NATO at this point because of the the Ukraine war. Uh, so there's a lot of hostility, I think, pent up toward Turkey for blocking uh, Sweden's accession. The Turks want the Swedish government essentially to ban protests against Turkey, it sounds like, uh, in Sweden, which runs into, runs kind of headlong into some things like, I don't know, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, uh, principles that the Swedish government may want to, uh, you know, at least consider, uh, before they do anything drastic. So I don't, I don't know how much progress they actually could have made here given what, what seems to be, uh, the complaints and, and that there's not really a great, a uh, way to address what the Turks want here, it doesn't seem like. Is NATO Grado? We don't think so. Derek, let's talk about Colombia and the ELN. Yeah, we talked about this um, last last week. There was, the, you know, they had been scheduled to sign a, a ceasefire agreement on Thursday in Cuba. Uh, they postponed that until Friday, but then did sign uh, Gustavo Petro, the, the president of Colombia, and Antonio Garcia commander in the uh, National Liberation Army, or ELN, signed uh, the agreement in Cuba. Uh, the plan is for the full ceasefire to go in if, into effect on August 3rd. Uh, it is a uh, six-month, at this point, I think, ceasefire uh, that will, you know, hopefully the, the idea would be to, to extend it and eventually get to a full-on uh, peace deal that would would obviate the need for these kind of temporary uh, ceasefires. In the in the intervening weeks, in the next you know over the next two months, the the government and ELN are going to continue to negotiate details around the ceasefire, setting up uh, monitoring systems and verification systems to 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 check any potential violations. Um, they will begin another round of talks uh, a couple of weeks after the ceasefire goes into effect. I guess you know, to give it. Uh, some time to see how it goes. They'll, they'll begin new talks in Venezuela on August 14th, again, with an, an eye toward a permanent peace deal. Of course, this is really important for Petro, as Petro has been a guerrilla fighter himself. He was uh, in a group called M19 during the 80s, and then he actually um, went into civil society signing a peace agreement himself. There are some concerns about uh, what seems to be on the table, chiefly uh, in terms of what actions the ELN will or will not be allowed to take under the ceasefire. A lot of the violence that Petro is trying to, to resolve, um, it has, it, it, it's shifted to some degree. It's no longer just about, uh, the ELN may, waging war on the Colombian government. There are a number of other groups out there that the ELN is contesting with for territory, for sort of, you know, uh, control over regions, over, businesses illicit or otherwise and that includes things like um ex you know FARC members and the factions that they've uh, kind of formed right-wing paramilitary groups uh, criminal gangs drug traffickers that sort of thing so a lot of the violence that goes on these days that, that Petro's trying to deal with is not necessarily uh the government versus these groups it's these groups fighting one another and it, it's unclear uh, what the, the ceasefire will mean for ELN in terms of its, you know, battles, potential battles against these other non-governmental armed groups and, and whether that, uh, you know, is gonna, gonna mean more continued fighting all, with 
the Colombia government actually less able to do anything about it because it's uh, handcuffed by the the ceasefire. But but I think this is one of the things that they're uh, still discussing and and kind of will uh, will try to work out by the time the ceasefire goes into effect. Pieces in the air, Derek. Pieces in the air. Uh, let's end with a new Cold War update. Uh, let's start with something the U.S. likes to periodically do, which is leave and then rejoin UNESCO. <laughs> yeah, this is kind of a pastime. Uh, we like to keep UNESCO on its toes. Uh, the, the U.S. has apparently informed UNESCO that it intends to rejoin the body uh, next month and will put in, in put together a plan uh, to pay uh, about $619 million uh, in back dues to bring itself into good standing. Um, the U.S. has been effectively out of UNESCO since 2011. The Obama administration uh, quit under, uh, constrained somewhat by, by U.S. law, actually, uh, to quit any international agency that admits Palestine as a member uh, that UNESCO did admit Palestine in 2011. So the U.S. stopped paying dues. Uh, it lost its voting rights a couple of years later after it had accumulated enough kind of back dues to, uh, for that penalty to come into effect. The Trump administration then pulled the U.S. out completely from UNESCO in 2018, again, citing uh, Israel-Palestine issues. Um, now the U.S. wants to come back in because... In its absence, China has basically become the driving force uh, behind UNESCO. The number two official in UNESCO is, is uh, a Chinese national. Uh, Beijing uh, provides uh, you know, a larger share of funding uh, to UNESCO than uh, any other country at this point since the U.S., uh, which previously supported about a fifth uh, of the agency's operating budget uh, is no longer doing that. Uh, so this is a new Cold War thing. This is the hearts and minds. Like we're, we were worried about China uh, nefariously, <laughs> you know, supporting uh, the work of the UN Educational Science. Science and Cultural Organization. Hate culture. God, how, how dare they? <laughs> yes, how dare they, uh, you know, do this uh, to, to curry favor. And so the U.S. wants to uh, step in and uh, kind of respond to that and, and regain uh, its position in that agency um unesco member states will vote on readmitting the u.s i think later this month uh it's unlikely they would vote against it all it takes is a simple majority and again to get that u.s funding back which you know you talk about uh 20 percent or more of of unesco's funding that's been kind of we had this hole blown in its budget for the last uh, decade plus uh i think that's that's probably too good to pass up uh let's talk about uh the u.s pushing u.n reform yeah, this is another uh, thing that the U.S. periodically likes to do is to pretend that we care uh, about the representation of the developing world in the U.N. I, I have a hard time imagining any of this going anywhere, but the U.S. is reportedly, according to uh, the Washington Post, among other outlets, pushing uh, a reform agenda for particularly the U.N. Security Council. Uh, the proposal, which would, uh, the pro- proposal would in the main add some number, it's unclear how many, uh, could be as many as six new permanent seats to the Security Council. Now, the countries that would be considered here uh, would include Germany, India, and Japan. And the, those are the sort of three givens because uh, there's been a lot of discussion about bringing them into permanent positions on the Security Council for years now, if not decades. So this has been a, a long th- a long time coming. 
Brazil would also be under consideration. And then uh, there is the possibility of at least one and maybe two permanent seats given to African countries. And the, the list there could include uh, you know, Egypt, uh, South Africa, Nigeria, Ethiopia. There's a number of potential candidates there. Uh, none of these new permanent members would have veto power. So that's a key distinction. Uh, the original five permanent members, the U.S., France, Britain, China, and Russia, formerly obviously the Soviet Union, but Russia inherited that seat, would retain uh, sole veto rights. And as a result, I think uh, it's safe to say that the council would continue to be completely dysfunctional. So it would be a little better from the perspective of representation, uh, broadening the council's membership and creating these permanent seats for certain countries in what could broadly be called the global south uh, would be a little better for representation. It's not going to really improve the functioning of the council, though, uh, because the veto is the thing that that makes the council more or less useless anytime there is a major geopolitical issue that involves a great power. They just veto whatever it is uh, and everybody goes on with their lives. But nevertheless, I think, you know, this does reflect uh, a broader kind of dawning revelation for the Biden administration that the United States is not uh, universally beloved by every country on the planet. Uh, shocking, I know, but I think that's where the uh, the evidence is pointing. Uh, so there's other things. The, the Post piece that, that talked about this uh, UN reform also mentioned there are some efforts to sort of cosmetically make some changes at other global bodies. The World Bank was the one that they particularly mentioned. I think it's safe to assume that these would also be relatively cosmetic changes. They would not do anything to really threaten um, U.S. prerogatives or Western prerogatives more broadly. Uh, but it is still an indication, again, of this kind of uh, fueled, I think, by the new Cold War, also by the response to um, the war in Ukraine. That, that the U.S. is trying to say, uh, you know, we're listening. We're listening to your consumer complaints about the U.S. empire and uh, trying to address them in the least painful manner possible. Let's conclude with friend of the pod, Anthony Blinken's visit to China. Yes, this has been rumored for a while now, but the Biden administration confirmed on Wednesday that Blinken is going to China. This will be the highest level meeting uh, or interaction between the U.S. and Chinese governments since uh, sometime before the great Chinese spy balloon of 2023 20, uh, controversy, when, uh, of course, Blinken canceled a, a visit to China in the middle of that, I hesitate to call it a crisis, but whatever you want to call it. And the Chinese government reacted very badly to that. There was a lot of, uh, you know, kind of hostile back and forth. There have been minimal high-level contacts between uh, the U.S. and China since then. So Blinken visiting is a uh, noteworthy development. He's supposed to leave, I think, on Friday uh, for a trip. It's uh, more than just China. I think he's uh, he's going to go to the UK, and then uh, you know at some point we'll make it make his way to China, and we'll uh, the trip will go through Wednesday. I don't know how long, what portion of that he'll spend uh, in China. I, I wouldn't expect any major developments to come out of this. It's not like we're going to achieve peace in our time, but it is good. Uh, to have some level of interaction going on here at, uh, at that, you know, kind of the foreign minister level. And they may discuss uh, another uh, meeting, whether it would be virtual or in person between Xi Jinping and, and Joe Biden. Uh, so kind of not, not a bad thing to see diplomacy getting back on some 
some track, even if it's not, uh, you know, don't expect any major developments. Just just getting the countries talking is is uh, uh, worthwhile. That's our message here at American Prestige. The first start to progress is talking. Derek, you thank go. you so much, and we'll see you all soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.